love celebrating uh, life change uh, through Jesus. It's something that we do. We've had the privilege of doing a lot over the last a few months is baptizing uh, people. And so let me, let me just say, I'd like to take this opportunity to say if that's something that perhaps the Holy Spirit is prompting you to do. Maybe you're a new follower of Jesus and you haven't done it. Or, or maybe you're like me. You were a follower of Jesus for a number of years and you just never took that step because it was kind of scary or it was intimidating. Uh, but you know, man, like this is just something that I need to do publicly is to take my faith public in, in Jesus Christ. If you'd like more information about baptism, uh, I'll be up here at the end of the service. love to talk to you about it. You can also email us at info at nlcca.org. We'd love to talk to you about what it would look like for you to be baptized uh, here as well. Now, if you are, are new here, uh, my name is Chris. If we haven't met, I'm one of the pastors uh, here at New Life. Again, I want to welcome those of you here here with us in the house as well as our online church family as well. We are back in our Apostles' Creed series, but before we get cranked up with the message this morning, I want to invite uh, Amber Black, our Kids Ministry Director, to share just a couple of things uh, with you guys. house of the Lord, and I got to come in here during the first service and in this service, and like my world is rocked. Just being able to be part of the praise and worship, getting to watch someone, a grown-up, be baptized, and it's just it's just so good for my heart and my soul to get to check in and here with you guys, and I want you to know that what you guys are pursuing in here, that closeness to Jesus, that getting to know the power of God, that's what we're doing in preschool and kids ministry as well on a level for your kiddos or grandkids, the kids in your life to understand and to be a part of. And so what I wanted to tell you some good news is that we have a weird problem, a wonderful problem, where um, as summer is winding up and kids are settling into their new routine, um, we have an influx of kids, and it is a beautiful, beautiful problem. We have about 80 to 100 kids every Sunday between our two services, and it's really important to me to do the best that we can. And so what we want to always do is have two adults or an adult and a teenager in the room so that the kids are getting all the help that they need and the attention that they need and safety's in place and all those things so that we can give them um, an age-appropriate presentation of God's Word and who He is and what He can do in their lives. And so what we need are some more people to join, on, join our team with us, especially if you have kids in the ministry. We would love to have you um, with us just once a month, one service a month, just to help us give our kids the best that we can um, to connect them with the Lord. Secondly, we have uh, something coming up on September 11th for all preschool to elementary school families. It's going to be a back-to-school equipping time, and we're inviting you to come and have a meal with us, have a time of connecting with other families or maybe meeting other families in the same life stage as you, um, maybe for the first time. And then from there, we're going to have a time of, um, of me giving you some resources that we as a church have to help you take Sunday all through the week with your kiddos at home, and then we're going to wrap up with a time of prayer over our kids and for the upcoming school year. So we really want you guys to be a part of, of that if you can, so if you have any questions, you can find me, email me, all the things, everything's on the website, but I'm just really grateful for this church and the support of the preschool and kids ministry, because one day they're going to be sitting right where you are, or right there, or up here, so um, it's just a great like exciting thing to be a part of. So thank you guys. Have a great service. I mean, thank Christmas. you, Amber. Yeah. So not, I know a lot of you are, are fairly, relatively uh, new to New Life, and so I would just uh, kind of uh, piggyback off of what Amber said and make that plea to you. Uh, if you're here, you consider this your church family, but you're not plugged in uh, serving anywhere yet, 
uh, that's a great place to serve. It's where my wife uh, serves. My oldest daughter also serves in the kids' ministry, and so we'd love to have you be a part of that. Now, we are in uh, week five of our We Believe series as we unpack the Apostles' Creed, and uh, if this happens to be your, your first Sunday, I'll just give you a, a brief summary of what the Creed is while we're studying it. The, the Creed is one of the oldest, if not the very oldest, uh, creed in church history, and so as far as we can tell, the earliest forms of it appear uh, over 1,800 years ago, and so really for all of church history across denominational lines, uh, Christians have made this confession uh, a part of uh, their, their gatherings on Sunday. In fact, oftentimes it was used as a baptism confession, right? right? Before someone was baptized, they would say, do you believe in God the Father Almighty? They'd say, I do. Do you believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord? They'd say, I do. They just kind of go through the whole creed before uh, they were baptized. It was used as a, a really probably the primary discipleship tool uh, early in the church, right? And so we didn't have Lifeway or ChristianBook.com. And so uh, one of the ways that, that early Christians were discipled was through this creed, right? Because you could remember it, uh, you could recite it. And so it was super, super helpful uh, in, in that regard. And I think one of the things that's most helpful about the creed is it's one of the, the maybe the greatest summaries of the entire biblical narrative from Genesis, the first book in the Bible, to Revelation, the last book in the Bible, right? So if you were here a few, few weeks ago, and we started with creation, Genesis chapter 1. That's where the creed starts, and it goes all the way to uh, the end, Revelation, with the return of Jesus and eternal life. Just a beautiful encapsulation of the whole biblical narrative that even a child can memorize and recite. And so just again, uh, an encouragement to you, uh, be memorizing this creed with me as we go through this over the next uh, few weeks. I'd love it if most of us would be able to recite it uh, by, by heart, by memory, uh, by the end of uh, this series. And so, so far in the creed, we've said, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. That's where we ended off last week, and this week we pick it up with a new line on the screens for you. I believe in Jesus Christ, here we go, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Now, this line in the creed brings us to a really sobering benchmark, I would say, in the Christian journey. Right? Jesus suffered. Jesus died a criminal's death. And he was buried in a tomb, as all dead people are. Right? Very common. This is a, this is a heavy line in the creed. And as I was going through this week, one, uh, one story that came to my mind was back in, in high school. Um, played football, and so we had a game on Friday night. We had a defensive lineman on our team, and his name was Ty, and he was the smallest defensive lineman that we had, but he was a pretty fierce player, and unfortunately, uh, halfway through the game, Ty got his cleat uh, stuck in, in, in the grass, and someone cut blocked him, and so when he stood up, instead of his knee going straight down, it looked like an L, and so he fell down. Literally, one of the football players puked when he saw it. People were crying. Uh, they rushed the ambulance on the field. Both the football teams were kneeling down, praying. It was a, it was a, a really scary scene. In fact, Ty almost uh, lost his leg because there was artery damage. He lost blood to the lower part of his leg. They were able to save his leg. That ended his uh, playing career, and he was, thank God, able to walk after that, even if it was uh, with, with a limp. Um, but anybody who drove by the stadium in that moment, there, there was a busy road that went right by the stadium, Anybody who drew, drove by in that moment would have immediately known that there was something very serious being attended to, right? Because you had all the trainers on the field, you had, you know, moms crying in the stand, yet both football teams were on a knee uh, praying for Ty. Anybody would have known there was something really serious being attended to in that moment. 
And so I wonder for you, have you ever walked into a situation where you just knew something serious was being dealt with in that moment? And I think that's really precisely what this line in the creed is intended to do for us. Something serious is being dealt with here. Something so serious, in fact, that the very Son of God had to suffer, die, and was, was buried. And that something is what the Bible calls sin. Now, sin is simply a, a biblical word, and I'll share with you uh, Augustine, the great church father, his definition, because that's better than anything I can come up with. Sin, sin is just a word, deed, or desire in opposition to the eternal law of God. Pretty simple, right? Sin is just a word, deed, or desire that is in opposition to the eternal way or law of God. And here's the bottom line. This is the bad news. I promise it will get better as we go along. The bad news, guys, is we are all infected by the virus of sin. In fact, the book of Romans says that we have all sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. The Apostle Paul goes on to say that the wages of sin is death. And he's not just talking about a physical death. He's also talking about a spiritual death, what some people, what some scholars would call a, a second death, which is eternal separation from God in a place the Bible calls hell. I want you to look at what Isaiah says in Isaiah 59 on the screens for you. It says this, But your iniquities or your sins have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. And so, listen, guys, I just want to say this uh, right out of the gate as boldly as I can and yet as gently as I can as well. Sin is a really big deal. Regardless of what our culture says today about, ah, it's not a big deal, you just kind of live your truth and you do your thing, and as long as you feel good about it, it's all. Listen, sin in the sight of a perfect and holy God is still a big deal today. And that's why the creed makes a big deal over this line. If you have a Bible, head for Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. That's going to be our base camp together this morning. We'll take a, a few expeditions out to some other passages, but that where we'll, that's where we'll kind of uh, uh, base camp it uh, this morning. And as you find your place there, would you pause with me and just pray as we get ready to enter into the word of the Lord. Father, I think we would we'd all have to confess that there are things in the scriptures in your word that are easy for us to understand, that are easy for us to apply. And on the same token, we would have to confess there are other parts of the scripture that are hard for us to understand, that are hard for us to hear and, and process, God. And so I pray that by the power of your spirit through these ancient words in scripture that you would illuminate some real deep spiritual truths in our hearts and our lives in a way that would impact us for your glory god and so we ask that what we know not you would teach us now over the course of the next 30 minutes what we have not you would give us what we are not that you would make us for the glory of your son and our savior jesus christ amen amen mark 15 i hope you're there we're going to start halfway through uh, verse one if you don't have a bible this will also be on the screens uh, for you as well mark writes this and they bound Jesus, and they uh, led him away and delivered him over to, to Pilate. And so this is a character that we're, was obviously mentioned in the creed. We're going to come back to him in just a minute. And Pilate asked him, are you, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things, and Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Now I want to take you back to the first words in our line in the creed this morning. Jesus 
suffered under Pontius Pilate. Now, does it strike you as odd as you've been thinking about the creed over the course of the last four or five weeks or however long we've been in this series that this guy gets mentioned by name in the creed? There are, there are only three names that get mentioned in the creed, by the way. It's Jesus, Mary, and Pontius Pilate. And he, he's the only one outside of Jesus and Mary that gets a shout-out by name in the creed. Not Moses, not Abraham, not, not Peter, not the Apostle Paul. Pilate gets in. How, how does that happen? What's that about? I'm going to tell you why that is in just a minute, but a couple of things you should know about Pilate before we really go any further is that Pilate was a Roman governor or a prefect, some would call him, in Judea from 26 to 36 AD. So this is confirmed uh, by historians outside of the biblical record. So he ruled in that area of Israel, 26 to 36 AD, about a decade. Um, as I studied uh, his rule and reign, uh, frankly, it seems to me he was kind of he was kind of middle management. Uh, he he really was not a huge deal in the Roman Empire. He was despised by the the Jews because he was a cruel leader. He was corrupt. He was violent. Nobody really liked him. He was a bad leader. One commentary writer uh, that I read called him a, a thug in a toga, which I really appreciated. Right. So that's Pilate is a thug in a toga. You just kind of picture that every time you read that now. In the grand scheme of things, this guy was a nothing burger. Like he was he was nobody. So, so why did the early church take painstaking effort to ensure that his name is recorded for us for all of time and history in the Apostles' Creed? Now here's why. This is hugely important. This was the early church's way of reminding us that the Jesus we worship lived in real history. In other words, Jesus was not a fairy tale, a myth, or a made-up story. Our belief in Jesus Christ is rooted in the bedrock of history. It is an established historical fact that Pontius Pilate ruled and governed Judea from 26 to 36 AD and oversaw the execution of a man named Jesus of Nazareth. You need to know, this is not disputed by any reputable historian, Christian, atheist, Jewish, you name it. Nobody disputes this as fact, as history. In the creed, we are confessing a historical event. This is important for us because we need to understand that our faith is not simply some, some feeling that we get when we come to church and, and, and we sing a song and we get goosebumps or we go have some emotional experience at a place like youth camp or something like that. There's nothing wrong with any of those things, but our, but, but our faith cannot be based, the foundation of our faith cannot be based on an emotional experience. And the architects of the creed knew that. They knew that our faith ultimately is about an act of God in history. And so as believers, when we confess that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, we, we are saying we believe in a real, living God in history, not a fairy tale, not a myth. So here's the first truth on the screens for you. If you're a note-taker, write this down. Our faith in Jesus is anchored in history. Again, this is not a myth. This is not a fairy tale. And that's why the Apostles' Creed makes uh, a very important point of making sure that Pontius Pilate is included in the suffering of Jesus. Now, if you're familiar with the story, after Pilate uh, interrogates Jesus, uh, he senses really, I think, deep down that something is, something is unusual about this man. This is not, this is not your uh, average run-of-the-mill criminal that he would have interrogated on a regular basis. And I think deep down, Pilate knew that this man was innocent. In fact, another gospel account says that his wife begins to have dreams about the innocence of Jesus, right? And she comes to her husband, and she's like, man, you better, be, you better be careful with this guy. This is not just a normal man. 
And so Pilate is obviously very concerned about this because, you know, the people that he's ruling over want this man executed, but he knows this guy is innocent, and he's kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place politically. So he goes out to the crowd, and he says to him, hey, guys, you know that it's our tradition that once a year, we as Romans release one of your Jewish prisoners back to you as a show of a good favor. And so we have two options. This, this year we have Barabbas. You know anything about Barabbas? He was a, a murderer and an insurrectionist, kind of like a, a terrorist back in the day. He's a bad dude. And so he says, I can either release to you Barabbas or I can release to you Jesus. And you kind of just picture the crowd. They begin to chant the name of Barabbas. Give us Barabbas the murderer. We want you to execute Jesus. So Pilate says, well, what, what should I do then with this man, Jesus? And the crowd starts to chant, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. One of the gospels even says that the crowd says, may his blood be on us and our children. Give us Barabbas, slaughter King Jesus. So what is Pilate to do? We pick up the story in verse 15. It says this, so Pilate wishing to satisfy the crowd, release for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, I don't want to stop there just for a minute because as modern folks, we get a word like that, scourge, and just kind, of, just kind of read right over it because we have no context in our culture for what that looked like. When someone was scourged in the Roman Empire, that's literally when their, their flesh was whipped off of their back. In fact, there are accounts from historians that said it was, it was not uncommon when a man was being scourged by a centurion to see a rib fly off of a man's body. This was not like you just got whipped with a stick and you got a little bruise on your back. This is torture. Many men bled out because of this. And so he had Jesus scourged, brutally tortured. And then it says he delivered him to be crucified. Now I want to pause here again for a second because I think for a lot of us, and I'm guilty of this as well, we think of the suffering of Jesus typically just in the, kind of the last 24 hours of his life. Right, the last 24 hours where he's arrested, has the mock trial, and is crucified, scourged, all those things. We kind of think of him suffering in the last 24 hours. But the reality is that Jesus lived a life of suffering. He lived a life of suffering. The book of Isaiah tells us that Jesus was a man of sorrows. Jesus was a man of suffering. His whole life was a series of sorrows and sufferings. I want you to think about, we talked about this last week, the beginning of his earthly life. Think about his birth. Was he born into a comfortable, warm palace setting? No, he entered into this world in the most unimaginable, terrifying way, right? Born to an unwed teenage mom. No room in the inn, scholars believe, probably born in a cave for livestock with animal dung all around. The most unsanitary, disgusting place you could think to have a baby. And so we sing songs at Christmas that sound really comforting and warming that are actually not theologically true at all, right? It was not a silent night. It was not a peaceful night. It was a terrifying night. It was a bloody night full of fear and chaos. And that's how our Savior entered the world. The Gospels tell us that then a man who was in power named Herod tried to kill him. And so Joseph and Mary had to flee. And they lived in Egypt for the first few years of Jesus' life. And so for his his kind of formative childhood years, Jesus lived as a refugee in another country, far away from family and friends and grandparents and everything that he would have known and his parents would have been familiar with. Many scholars also believe, because there's no mention of Joseph, 
uh, once Jesus becomes an adult and starts his earthly ministry, a lot of scholars believe that Joseph, his stepfather, his earthly father, likely died uh, at a young age when Jesus was a kid, maybe a, a teenager, but he's not on the scene anymore by the time Jesus becomes an adult. We read in the gospel and his, his friends and even his family don't believe him until after the resurrection. We see the night before he's crucified, he's betrayed by his very best friends in the moment that he needed them most to show up for him. And I want you to understand this morning, his entire life, from his birth all the way to his torturous death, was a series of suffering after suffering and sorrow after sorrow. In fact, the Greek word um, that's used in the Bible for the suffering of Jesus is, is pasco, where we derive our word passion. And the idea is that Jesus' sufferings were not without person, without purpose. That, that he was actually driven to suffer and to die to redeem people because uh, of his passion, his love for us. So here's, here's what I don't want you to miss. This is truth number two on the screens for you. Jesus suffered to save you, friend. He suffered to save you. In fact, I want you to see what the prophet Isaiah wrote 700 years before the birth of Jesus about who Jesus would be about what his life would look like and what he would endure as he walked on planet Earth for 33 years. This is what the prophet Isaiah predicted would happen and, of course, came to pass, as we know now, about Jesus. Isaiah 53, starting in verse 3. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom man hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 12, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressor. And maybe you've asked the question yourself, man, why did Jesus have to suffer? Why couldn't he live a peaceful life full of enjoyment and die a quiet, peaceful death, just fall asleep one night and not wake up, wake up in the presence of his father? And the reality is this. Jesus had to suffer because God is just. Because God is a perfect, holy God that cannot be in the presence of sin. God couldn't just cancel our debt. Instead, Jesus paid our debt. When God couldn't cancel our debt, Jesus stepped up to the plate and paid the debt that you owe because of your sin and I owe because of my rebellion. The righteous for the unrighteous, the sinless for the sinful. This is called by scholars the great exchange. Jesus in your place, Jesus in my place. Now, here's what that means practically, and this is practically true for you as well if you're in Christ. What this means practically for me is that when I stand before my creator one day, the God of this universe, on that final day, on the day of judgment, when the Father looks at me, instead of seeing my sin patterns and my rebellion and the ways that I've defied God and his laws and all of my mistakes and all of my wicked thoughts, I would be terrified if anybody even knew that I thought those things. Instead of God seeing those things, he looks at me and he sees the blood of Jesus applied to my life. Chris Dillon, 
That's the great exchange, and it's a beautiful truth. I love the way that uh, Tim Keller, pastor up in New York, put it this way on the screen for you. Keller writes this, we are far worse than we ever imagined. That's the bad news. Here comes the good news. And we are also far more loved than we could ever dream. So I just want to say to you, friend, your, listen to me. Your sin, I'm not talking about the sin of the world. I'm not talking about the sin out there, the sin of the culture. I'm talking about your sin. Your sin is very serious to a perfect and holy God. Very serious. I want to pick it up in Mark, verse 16. He continues, he says this, and the soldiers led him inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together a whole battalion, scholars tell us, that's likely between four and 600 Roman soldiers. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, twisted together a crown of thorns, and they put it on him, or they, they pressed it into his flesh. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a, with a reed or, or like a baton, a bat, spitting on him, kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. Verse 24, When they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them, deciding each what each should take. And so they're they're making a game of his torture and death. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription or the charge against him read the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him or mocked him as he suffered in agony wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come down from that cross. And so also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, but he can't even save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled or mocked him. Our church family, I want you to understand something. Jesus didn't die some sanitary death in a comfortable, comfortable hospital bed pumped full of pain medication so that he didn't experience any discomfort in his final hours, surrounded by friends and family who held his hand and sang to him. I mean, th praise God, that will be a lot of our experiences when we step from this life to the next, thanks to the miracle of modern-day medicine. That was not what Jesus experienced. He endured the most brutal, agonizing death possible, death on a Roman cross. Now, I need you to understand this, because as modern-day people living in 2022, where executions, if they even happen anymore, depending on what state you live in, they happen behind closed doors. Nobody sees them. They happen in the most humane way, the, the quickest way possible, the most sanitary way possible to minimize pain, to keep that to a limit. So you just need to understand that as people that live in that modern day context, you need to understand that the Roman cross was specifically designed to inflict the most possible pain for the longest period of time before a human being actually succumbed to death. And it started with humiliation, by the way. We know from scholars that these guys were, were stripped down uh, naked before they were crucified, so all these pictures that you see with like a nice little white toga towel are, are not accurate. <laughs> They wanted them completely humiliated. And they would stretch them out, and they would nail their wrist to the wooden beams, and they would nail their ankles to the wooden beam. 
in such a way that they would miss the primary arteries and veins so they would not bleed out. The way that most of these guys died is they would literally asphyxiate because they couldn't breathe, so they would have to press up on their ankles where the nail was driven in in excruciating pain every single time just to get a breath as they gurgled on their own blood and began to slowly drown in their own blood. As people walked by, usually taking about three days for death to come, continually mocking them, spitting on them, and this is what Jesus endured. So church family, I, I want you to hear me say, we, we have a Savior who is a man of sorrow and suffering to such an extent that nobody walking on planet Earth, past, present, or future, can ever say to Jesus, you don't know what I'm going through. Jesus, you can't, you can't understand, you can't sympathize with my, my pain and my suffering. Like You can say that to me because I know many of you have suffered more than I have, but nobody can ever say that to Jesus who suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified. That's the first half of the line. The second part of our line this morning says that he was dead and buried. Now, why is that important? Let's pick up in verse 33 as Mark continues. It says, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you need to understand, man, this is not just physical suffering that Jesus is enduring, right? As Jesus takes on all of our sin, you get to picture the, the Father turning his face from the Son for the very first time in all of eternity. The Son is separated from the love of his Father as he takes on all of your sin and all of my sin. This is more than just physical suffering. This is spiritual torment abandoned by his Father to make atonement for your sin and my sin. Verse 37, And Jesus uttered a loud cry, and he breathed his last. And at that moment, the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, this is, this is huge. You understand your Old Testament doctrine and theology because the curtain in the temple separated the Holy of Holies, where God's presence literally resided from sinful people, right? So this curtain, this, this veil, literally separated us because of our sin from the actual presence of God. And at the moment that Jesus died on that cross, Mark tells us that that veil was shredded in half, torn apart, signifying that through Jesus, we are no longer separated from our Creator. This is fantastic news. This is incredible. Verse 39, and when the centurion, the, the Roman soldier who was there guarding the cross, who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last. He said, truly, this man was the Son of God. And you see, dear brother and sister, it was not enough just for Jesus to suffer. In order to satisfy the judgment against your sin and my sin, he had to make full payment for our sin, including death. That's why the very last thing that Jesus says on the cross before he breathes his last is, te telestai, it is finished. In other words, it is paid in full. Reminds me of the old, old hymn, right? My sin, not in part, but the full, nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Romans says that the wages of sin is death. I want you to see Paul say this in Romans 5. This will be on the screens for you. He says this, for a while, if we were 
for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. See, not just suffering, but also his death required full payment for sin. The death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And through his life, he now offers us life. So truth number three on the screens for you. Jesus died to bring you life. Real life. And you need to understand, when I, when I say that he, he suffered and he died to bring you life, I'm not talking about just mere existence on planet Earth for 70, 80, 90 years, however long the Lord gives you. Or you just kind of wake up each day, we go to work, and we grind for 8, 9, 10 hours, and we come home and eat some meal and then plop down on the couch and Netflix it up for two hours and, and go to bed and wash, rinse, and repeat for 50, 60 years, and then we die. Listen, that is not living. That is existing, and that is not what Jesus came to bring us. I want you to see what he came to bring us. This is the words of Jesus in John chapter 10 on the screens for you. Jesus says this, the thief, that is our enemy, Satan, he comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Listen, y'all, I want that life. I don't want to just live. I, just want to, I don't want to just take up space on planet Earth or breathe oxygen. I want real life, abundant life. Verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Do you see that, church family? Jesus laid down his life willingly. Nobody took it from him to give you not just any life, not just existence on planet Earth, to give you abundant life. I love that word. I want that. I want abundant life. I want all that Jesus died to give me. That word abundant life means a life with real purpose. A life, though, fraught with sorrow and pain because of the broken world that we live in. A life also filled with inexplicable joy and peace at the very same time. The life that every single one of us in this room watching online right now longs for deep down in our souls. I need you to know that life is made possible and available to you through the suffering and death of Jesus Christ, our Savior. I want to finish out the... The, the narrative in Mark, and starting in verse 42, Mark says this, when evening had come, since it was the day of, of preparation, right? They're getting ready to, to, to celebrate the, the Passover feast. That is the day before the Sabbath. Verse 43, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God. So he, he's a seeker, right? He, he's intrigued by Jesus, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And Pilate, this Roman thug, was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead, and when he learned from the centurion that he was indeed dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a, a linen cloth or a shroud, and taking him down off the cross, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the creator of the universe, buried in a borrowed tomb. No fanfare. No grand parades. No place of honor. Common burial for the king of the universe. And all I'll say about that is this. This is truth number four this morning. Jesus was buried into death so that you would never have to fear death. Jesus was buried into death so that you would never have to fear death. Listen, guys, what, what's, the, what's the number one thing that terrifies us as human beings? Is it not death? 
I think a lot of studies show actually public speaking is number one and then number two is death, right? So I get to do both. We're so scared of death. So scared of death. And isn't, isn't that why we fight as hard as we can as human beings to stay alive as long as we possibly can? Isn't that why the, the cosmetic surgery industry is a multi-billion dollar industry in our culture, right? Because maybe if we can look young, even when we're not young, we can pretend like death isn't inching closer and closer to our doorstep. Listen, people are terrified of death. I think we got a taste of that over the last two and a half years, haven't we, right? With COVID-19, people lost their ever-loving minds. Now, what, what's the root of that? Is, is, is the root of that not fear of death? And yet, as Christians, if you believe the words of Jesus, if you believe the teachings of his disciples and apostles, as Christians, we have nothing to fear when it comes to death. We have nothing to fear when it comes to death because we have a Savior who walked the path of death, who was buried into death, and who walked out of that tomb three days later victorious and offers his victory to everyone who would follow him. And so now we can say, along with all the saints, with the Apostle Paul, as he said in 1 Corinthians 15 on the screens, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of the sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. In a world flooded with death, friend, life is available to you through Jesus Christ. And I love the way Peter, one of Jesus' best friends, puts it in 1 Peter 3. Peter writes this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. This is the great exchange. Our sin for his sinless life. The righteous for the unrighteous. Jesus in my place. Jesus in your place. That he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Now two quick uh, takeaways that I, I want to give you, and then we'll wrap it up and we'll be done. I want you to walk away with a sense of at least two things from our time together this morning. Number one is I want you to walk away with a sense of the seriousness of your sin. I don't mean sin generally. I don't mean sin out there. I don't mean uh, sin of the world. I mean, I'm talking about your sin. And I need you to understand that just as easily as Pontius Pilate's name is tied to the suffering and death of Jesus Christ, your name could just as easily be substituted into the creed. In fact, I did that this week for myself. I believe in Jesus Christ who suffered under the weight of Chris Dillon's sins. It was my sin against a perfect and holy God. It was my rebellion that drove him to the cross. Friend, you need to understand that the only thing that you contribute to your salvation is the sin that made the cross necessary. You are responsible. I am responsible. And don't make the mistake that so many people in our culture make of, of, of making yourself feel better about yourself by comparing yourself to other fallen, broken people. And don't we all do that? My hand's up, man. I, I, I'm the king of self-justification. And while most of us would never say it out loud because we would be embarrassed, while most of us would never articulate this in front of other people, for a lot of us, the thought process goes something like this. I mean, yeah, I guess I, guess I gossip every now and then. Like, I guess every now and then, maybe I tell a little white lie, and occasionally I'll lose my temper. There was that one time I flipped a dude off in traffic, you know, I-240, but, you know, I kind of hate people in my heart sometimes, but, I, like, I've never killed anybody. 
never even raped anybody, and I'm not a serial adulterer like that dude that I work with across the office. Like, I'm not like him, so I'm, I'm pretty good. Listen, y'all, do not make that mistake. That is not your bar. Your bar is a sinless, holy, perfect God. That's the bar, and you fall way short. Just like I do. Every single day of your life. I love the way John Owen, a pastor in the 1600s, uh, put it. He famously said, be killing sin or it be killing you. I love it. That's simple. I can remember that. Be killing sin or it be killing you. And for some of you, that's your reminder. That's what you need to hear most today, that you need to understand the seriousness of your sin, your rebellion against a perfect and holy God. Because for some of you here in the room watching, all, you're toying with your sin right now. You're playing games with it. And you've bought the lie that culture has sold you that it's not really a big deal. That if it's not hurting anybody, that if you're just living your own truth, whatever the heck that means, that you're going to be okay in the end. And I'm telling you, that is a heaping pile of flaming garbage. You're not going to be okay in the end. Your sin has separated you from your Creator. And it has to be dealt with. It is serious. Now, that's probably half of you in the room that need to hear that. There's the other half of you need to hear the, the second application that I want to give right now, and that is this. So, some of you need to walk out with a real serious sense of the depth of God's love. See, some of you need to wake up to the seriousness of your sin, but there are others of you, man, I don't have to convince you of the seriousness of your sin because you feel weighed down and shackled by your sin. And you're just eaten up by guilt and shame and your struggle is one of forgiving yourself for what you've done and you can't and because you can't, you feel like God can't. And if, I just want to say, if that's you, if you're in that second group of people, I just want to tell you this morning on the authority of God's word and an empty tomb in Jerusalem that the suffering and death of Jesus is a signpost that is screaming to you that God's love is deeper than all of your sin. And that his suffering and his death is proof of that. Believer, understand the word says that our sins have been removed from us as far as the east is from the west because of the work of Jesus on the cross. And so an instrument of, of death, one that we have hanging on our wall before you every single Sunday with a light shining on it, an instrument of torture and death, friend, has become the pathway of life for all who would believe in his name and call on him. So my question for you as we close is simply, do you believe? Do you believe in Jesus Christ, God's only son, our Lord, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, to suffer under Pontius Pilate, who was crucified, died, and buried? Friend, he is the pathway to life. Let's pray, and then we're going to worship. Heavenly Father, we come to you. And for many of us, God, this, this really needs to be a call to repentance. Or for many of us, we need to confess that we have not taken our sin nearly as seriously as we should. And many of us would need to confess that we've taken our sin far too lightly. And that it was our sin and our rebellion that actually drove you to the lengths that you had to go through to save us. 
your suffering and your bloody death on the cross. Driven by our sin, my sin. God, would you remind us that we ought not toy around with our sin. That every day by the power of the Holy Spirit, we should wage war against our sin. Because it's what the enemy uses to try to kill us, to destroy us. But thank you that you've come to give us life and to give us life abundantly, God. Would you remind us when we are tempted to despair because of our sin and our guilt and our shame and our sorrow, would you, would you remind us over and over again of the depths of your love for us? And if we ever doubt it, God, that we just look up to that cross as proof of how deeply you love us and the lengths to which you will go to save your sons and your daughters. God, I just pray if there's even a single person in the room watching online who would have to just confess, like, man, I don't, I don't know this Jesus. Man, I know some things about him. I heard some stuff. My mom taught me some stuff. My grandma taught me some stuff when I was a kid, but I do not have a life-changing, dynamic relationship with my creator through Jesus. God, I pray that you'd give that person the courage even now to crowd in their own hearts, to turn away from their sin, to turn to find abundant life in Jesus. And I pray that that person would have the courage to come and talk to somebody so we could walk that path with them for days, weeks, months, and years ahead. God, thank, we cannot thank you enough for sending Jesus on a rescue mission to suffer and die to atone for our sin to make us right with you. We love you. We pray all these things in the beautiful name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Church family, would you